Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs' fuel. <laughs> <laughs> well, goodness gracious me. Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. Episode 10. What? 10? 10. That's like nearly a teenager if it and was And we still have people listening to it. We supposedly. hope. Possibly. We don't know. It's a new year. We're into double figures. What stories could you possibly have in store for us today, Stephen? Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that formal inquiry. <laughs> um, I think we took a break last month, didn't we, for a festive bit of festive cheer with um, festive festivities. And uh, that break was from my life in Zambia, and I do just want to go back to that for one more episode, um, and it'll lead up to the to the journey home from Zambia, which is a trail for episode eleven, which is just one not to miss if you're listening Ooh. to this. But I thought, I mean, I did say a bit about my life in Zambia, but I thought I'd just highlight one or two of the kind of daily things that happened just to give you an idea. And I I think I might have said that when I originally got there, I was transferred from one location to another to this Mwakera Forest College. So we're up in the northern part of Zambia, in the Copper Belt, as it's called, and I was a teacher. And when I first arrived, they they didn't really know what to do with me um, because I'd been transferred sort of unexpectedly, and nobody expected it, least of all me and least of all the principal of the college. Um, and so he sent me on a on a course, uh, a week long course. Now I bet you can't guess the subject of that course. Forestry. No, <laughs> beekeeping. Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> now that I wasn't was, going to guess that. You you did a beekeeping course. I did a beekeeping course, and it was actually because um, I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute. But in in the natural forests of that part of Zambia, the um, the the people who live in that area. Uh, quite a lot of them are beekeepers and they do that in the forest so it impacts the way the forests grow and the management of the forests mm. so the forestry department had a whole beeking a key beeping a key beeper is one of those things that opens your car isn't it anyway. <laughs> imagine if you had a key beeper for a beekeeper for... that opened the hives <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Anyway, the, the the beekeeping department was uh, in in the Mukera Forest College area. So I was sent on this course for a week with um, students from all over Zambia, and it was massively interested. And it was it was funded by the Finnish government, who uh, who had some aid program, and they put some money in. And we learnt all about how to keep bees, but especially in relation to the Zambian forests. So traditionally, the uh, Zambian people in that area, when they were uh, keeping bees, the first thing they'd do is make a hive. And to do this, they would use the bark of a tree. So they'd take a, a tree with a, a, a trunk of diameter, I don't know, one foot. So quite a big tree anyway, yeah. maybe longer, one, one foot six across. And so they'd cut an incision around the base of the tree, about um, a foot off the ground, say, and it would go through the bark and right the way around the circumference. And then they do the same thing about a metre, three feet higher up. Mm. Uh, so you've got two circular cuts, and then they do a vertical cut. So they could peel off 
the whole bit of bark of the tree and you'd have a sort of a circular um, cylinder really with a, with a slice down the middle and that's what they used to make the beehive which of course is a catastrophe for the tree because the tree can't live without bark you know if you take the bark off all the way around it's, I mean, this is another useful fact, in case you don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually didn't know that, mm. yeah. No, I didn't know this. If you take all the bark off apart from an inch, the tree will still live, probably. But if you cut off that last inch, then that's where all the nutrients of the tree go up and down. Um, oh. And all, all the... So, so cutting the bark off a tree is a very, very bad idea. And so this is a disaster for Zambian forests. So that's part of the reason why the forestry department had a beekeeping department. So I went on this course... And I learnt how you could make your own hive out of, say, scrap wood that was was didn't have any more use but wasn't damaging to the to the forest. Um, and how bees. <laughs> one thing I remember is that if you've got two colonies of bees that are small and you want to combine them, they basically don't like being combined mm-hmm. colonies of bees. But if you put them in on either side of a box with a sheet of newspaper between them, vertically up between these two colonies, separating them. They kind of nibble their way through, and so they don't. They don't suddenly see their other swarm and go, "Ah, I don't like you." Huh. They nibble their way through, and as they nibble their way through, they say, "Oh, hello, you're another bee. Hello, you're another bee." Oh. And hey, pre- hey, Presto, you've got a combined swarm Whoa. of bees. So. Wow, there are some top tricks coming out of this yeah, uh, podcast episode. <laughs> well, I'm very much hoping to uh, to use this extensive knowledge from 40 years ago um, in our beekeeping hive here in France next year. Mm. Um, so anyway, I, I did the course and I passed and I've even got a certificate to say I've been on a beekeeping course in Zambia, which was pretty good, really. And so Mokera was a small village, really. It had dirt roads um, and in between the roads there were uh, what we call Miombo woodland. So there were trees um, with quite a lot of light coming through, but um, gorgeous red flowers in, in, in the springtime. And uh, along these roads, there would be dotted uh, mostly brick houses. And then the college had its own complex. And I was basically a teacher. So I would get up in the morning, go to a classroom and um, teach some people. Um, There were probably about 10 members of staff, I think. And we did two courses, one for forest rangers and one for forest officers. And these were young students who had just left school. And the courses were two, two years each. So we had four classes, in other words, year one, year two, for two different courses. And I suppose it was about 15 students in each, so roughly 60 in overall. And although the listeners at home won't be able to see this, I'm just going to show you this little picture of one of the uh, year groups um, of the students, all looking very cheerful, mm. Mm. Uh, posing as a group a for the camera. Very nicely symmetrically posed, plo- posed I, as well. I know. <laughs> Symmetri- symmetrically posed. Symmetrically posed Plato. <laughs> and at the head of the college was, uh, was Owen with his Canadian wife. And uh, there's Owen and his Canadian wife. There we go. Oh, is that the motorbike that you brought? No, that was his motorbike, actually. So there's a bit of rivalry between him and me, because he, <laughs> he was quite young. He, he'd trained in Canada, which is where, where he'd met his, his wife. And um, I think he was probably in his late 20s, whereas most of the staff were, were older generation, apart from me, of course. So he and I were the young, the young bugs who were roaring around on our motorbikes (laughs) so anyway this this was my little home a bus came once a week um which took us into town if we wanted to go into town which is where i did my shopping and there were sort of high points and low points and the high points were always around two things they were around the arrival of the private bag so everywhere else in the world that i know you write to a 
P.O. box, but in Mukera they had a private bag. So uh, my family and my friends used to write to private bag Mukera, hmm. and uh, that would be delivered by the post office, uh, usually once every two or three days. And probably once every 20 or 30 times that came, there would be some stuff for me in it. And that was definitely a high point of hearing news, which, of course, there was a two or three week delay between letter being posted in the United Kingdom and arriving out there. And then, of course, another two or three week delay for the reply. When you say a private bag, do you mean there's like a bag of posts at the post office and you or with somebody and you go and retrieve your letter from it or do you mean you particularly had a bag that was just yours kind of thing no it was for the whole college actually it was and it was a physical bag it doesn't sound very private to me is what i was no, thinking well, this is the funny thing <laughs> it's like a whole village i don't know why it's got a <laughs> you went and got this physical bag and collected it from the post office and i think swapped it with another one or something and then mm. tipped it out and there was all the post um but the other the other high point would be around when when butter came into the shops because um turned out, didn't know this before, but butter was one of my sort of survival mechanisms. And it was very rarely in the shops. But when it was, um, sort of word went round and I'd jump on my bike and do the half an hour uh, or three quarters of an hour, whatever it was, into town and buy whatever I could persuade them to sell me. Uh, usually it was two blocks at a time, I think. And then get back to town, get back to, to my house with a loaf of bread from the little bakery in the, in, in the town. And you can never guess what I put on it, but butter went on Half first. Half a pat of butter. And then honey from the beekeeping department, oh. which was absolutely oozing with pots of honey. Mm. And um, I was perfectly capable of eating my way through a whole loaf of bread and half a pack of butter and a half a pot of, of honey, which, looking back on it, was quite shocking, really, but it was sort of <laughs> one of those things that just kept me going, mm, I suppose. Delicious. One of the other things that I used to keep keep me going was every so often um, I'd take, get on my bike and drive through the woodlands for about um, nearly an hour, I think it was. In fact, the first time when I was following somebody, I didn't know if I'd be able to find my way back, but, but I did. Um, and this was a, a South African farmer who had come up to Zambia and had bought some land and was uh, farming livestock. And he had a, a, a place there where he produced um, sausages and cuts of meat, which in those days was another kind of comfort eating food for me. But particularly going all that way and having these guys say, oh, how great to see you, you know, another kind of bit of support mm. mechanism, really. And uh that became very interesting at the end of my time in Zambia, um, after my two years, when I was thinking, I'd made quite a lot of friends by then and was certainly pretty well known in the in the area with my motorbike, which was quite unusual. And um, there wasn't anyone else really like me um, kicking around. So I thought I really should have a farewell do of some kind, but how to do it and what to do. And um, for some reason, it popped into my head that a a spit roast pig would be quite a cool thing in those days. That's the way I was thinking. And um, I asked somebody in the village, you know, where would you start with this? And they said, oh, you want to go and see this chap, which is uh, back at the meat farm. Um, but it wasn't him. It was his brother who was in another farm nearby. So I didn't know this chap at all and he didn't know me. So I went uh, again through the woods, jumped on my motorbike and arrived at this sort of fabulous house, really, in a clearing with a beautiful view that you sort of imagined you might see some wild animals wandering around. We didn't, actually, but it sort of looked like that sort of place. I knocked on the door, and this uh, this chap answered, and um, I said, I want to talk to you 
about a pig, and I, I understand you, you're the person. Oh, come in, come in, come in. Great to see you, he said. Come in. He didn't know me from Adam. And he took me out of the back, and um, he gave me a cup of tea and on this little veranda with a table overlooking this view. And he couldn't stop talking. He was asking me all my questions. What are you doing? Why are you here? What, how did you get on? Um, uh, why are you going back? You know, um, what are you going to do next? I mean, I felt like I was in a job interview or something. <laughs> but he was, he, it reminded me, years later, when we went to get a mortgage at our French bank here. I know this is a slight odd um, segue, but I went to the local bank here in France for a mortgage and uh, they interviewed us twice in French for a couple of hours each time. And their questions were all the same. You know, what do you do? Where do you go on holiday? What are your children doing? And um, I think in both cases, they were trying to just find out how you tick, who you are, what sort of person you are. And in the bank's case, you know, what a risk you are in terms of borrowing money. Um, And in this place, this chap's case in Zambia, whether I was a suitable person to sort of help, really, because what he then said was, he said, now, why have you come? And so I said, well, I've been here for two years. And as I said to you, I want to have a party. And I I was thinking about a spit roasted pig. And I thought I was told you might be able to give me some advice. And he said, absolutely, said, don't worry about it. When's the party? And I said it will be um, it'll be on Saturday morning in two weeks' time. And he said, OK, he said, don't worry, I'll deliver the pig on a spit to you and all you need is one of your mates, give him a crate of beer and tell him to turn the, the handle a quarter turn every 15 minutes <laughs> and do it. Do that for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, a, I hope there's a big, big crate of beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so that was great, but I was sort of absolutely terrified about the cost of this because... Um, mm. Because I said, uh, as, as I've mentioned before, I think I was pretty skint when I was out there, having been back to UK sort of fairly illicitly in the middle of my, my term. I didn't really have any money. And so I, I sort of broached the subject and he said, oh, there won't be any charge, he said. He said, he said you've come out here and given two years of your life. He said, there won't be any charge to that. It's my, the very least I can Aww. do. And I was kind of like, whoa. <laughs> um, and I mean, that that's, as you probably know, is a a theme that's followed me through life really is the unbelievable generosity of people uh, mm. who, for no apparent reason, because they can, um, just help you out. And I think that's something I've tried to adopt and do in return if I come across somebody who needs help because it seems to sort of go round and round in a circle. Mm. So that was very exciting and he was as good as word. And it it came, built a fire, six hours later we had the party. Um, it was a great send-off and I will always be grateful to that. That guy whose name I I don't know if I ever really knew it actually. I certainly yeah. don't don't remember it now. It reminds me of that story that I um, sent you all at Christmas, which I just loved reading about the uh, the guy who's trying to get back home urgently and was like missing the last train and it was all you know wasn't sure how he was going to get back and then the train conductor um, oh. halted the connecting train to wait for him because he could tell that this this person just really needed to get back home. Um, And I really liked what he said, which was that when the guy went to thank the conductor for for going to all that effort to help him, and he he said, you know, pay it... He he was saying, how can I repay you for for helping me out so much? And he was saying, pay it forward, because the world works on people having been helped and then recognising how much of a benefit that can be and then helping other people when when they need it. I just love that. Mm. As yeah, a kind of so way good. of thinking about things. And as a complete contrast, you know um, when Becky got married out here 
a while back. Mm. And um, before we'd had a chance to discuss the arrangements, this is uh, my niece, your cousin, for the listeners, before we'd had a chance to discuss the details, I had spotted that quite often in the local car park at the supermarket was a gold vintage Rolls Royce was often parked there and with a British number plate. And uh, I thought, well, next time I see that, I'll, I'll go and ask him if he fancies driving Becky to or from somewhere during mm. the day. Because was, it was a lovely car, gorgeous condition. Mm. So I, I suddenly, I saw it there one day and I went over and the chap was just unloading his shopping in the, in the boot of this, this Rolls Royce. And I, I said my little spiel about Becky getting married in Nice and her living up, you know, and I said, it's very nearby. It was, it went, and I said, I wondered if you'd be, be willing to drive her. And he just said no and shut the boot and got in the car and drove off. And it was just like, it was like, it was, I was just so surprised because it yeah. was kind of, if I had a car like that, I'd want to show it off everywhere. So. <laughs> Little do you know that every five minutes you get someone going, oh, would you mind driving? <laughs> yeah, <X-Y."> yeah, <laughs> and you're just in a long line of people. <laughs> yeah, that's possibly true. And in fact, as it turned out, she didn't need driving anywhere because she walked. So yeah. it was, it was, fun, but it was, a, it was a, a scheme that didn't have any future anyway so that took me to the end of my time as a teacher and uh, it was at this point that my very phony friend if you remember that from uh, Andrew joining us a few episodes back to talk about phones had written to me in fact I think he told the tale on the podcast where he tried to call me from uh, Papua New Guinea on the radio telephone and got put through to the, the forestry college in Ghana instead of the forestry college in Zambia but anyway, the, the reason for that call was to, to see if we could arrange for him to come out to Zambia and us to, to go home to UK together over land, which was going to be the sort of epic kind of mm. uh, a voyage. And it was at this point that having had that phone call, made the arrangements, um, Andrew flew out to Lusaka in, in the capital and I left my college base, packed on my bags and went down to Lusaka as well. And we met up. And that was very exciting because we hadn't seen each other for more than two years and he'd been having his own adventures in Papua New Guinea. The plans were made to leave in about, I think we were in Loose Africa three or four days before heading off. We were at a party uh, a couple of days before we were due to leave for somebody. It wasn't anything to do with me, it was just a party I'd been invited to and he came along. And two things were interesting about that party. One is that there was a, a married couple there and during the evening, it transpired that Andrew had met both of them individually and separately before they ever knew each other in different Whoa. parts of their hmm. lives. And he'd travelled all the way across the world to Zambia and found that they were married to each other, <laughs> which was just... At a party that he was randomly going to as well. <laughs> yes. like... He shouldn't even have been at the party. What? And I didn't really know. I mean, that, that might never have been real and it didn't sort of have any real significance other than, as the, I often say... No matter where you are, you should always you you should never misbehave. I'm sorry, Miss <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? You should never misbehave because there's always someone around the corner who knows your mum or, or is born next door or something. I don't know. So anyway, so the other interesting thing that happened at the party was there was um, another VSO volunteer. Uh, let's call her Fiona. And uh, she had come out and been working on a project um, in the Lusaka area and it found it didn't suit her at all. Um, And she didn't suit the project and the project didn't suit her. So she had decided to go home and she told VSO earlier that day. And as we got chatting and um, she was talking to Andrew, you might be interested to know, and uh, discovered that we were heading off in a couple of days' time. And she said, oh, can I come with you? And um, because we were at a party and because we couldn't think of any other reason, really, we said, well, yeah, that'd be great. 
why don't you tag along? Yeah, great. So we found ourselves three days later uh, at the main bus station in Lusaka, waiting for a bus to take us right up to the north at a place called Mpulungu, which is right on the the coast of um, Lake Tanganyika. It's a huge lake that goes right up um, alongside Tanzania and connects up with Burundi in the north. And our plan was to take a bus to this um, to this boat, uh, which was a sort of twenty three hour bus journey, I think, and then get the boat up the lake, and then head on up through Burundi and maybe Rwanda and onwards. We'd only made the plans for the first the first step really. So there we were at the bus station with with Fiona, and pretty quickly it it, it became sort of obvious that that the chemistry of the group of three just just wasn't going to work. I mean, you know, two's company, three's a, three's a crowd, maybe a, maybe a good maxim. Anyway, it, it wasn't, re- wasn't long before we realised that, um, that somebody had to go. And uh, <laughs> this was at the bus station before we left. But by then we were sort of committed to at least the first step. And so we sat in this bus station. Actually, I think the bus was supposed to go in the morning around nine o'clock or something, blisteringly hot. And the bus didn't didn't leave until about seven o'clock in the evening. And we were we were waiting all day long. And every so often there would be a, a big sort of kerfuffle and somebody would say, oh, the bus is here for, for Mpulungu. And everyone would get up and grab their suitcases because it looked to us and everybody else like there weren't enough spaces on a normal bus for everybody who was waiting for it to get on Mm. so um the stakes were very high so there'd be a big shuffle around and then everyone would be jockeying for position and we'd got there very early and we were sort of at the front of the queue but by sort of midday the queue had disseminated into a mass bunch of people who were kind of all elbowing their way ourselves included to get on whatever bus came in fact none of them were the right ones they were coming and going off somewhere else so we spent the whole day getting more and more irritable, really. And there was one particular chap. He had a face a little bit like a squirrel, I remember. Um, very <laughs> pointy nose. And um, this guy just irritated us. Well, certainly Andrew and me. He, he was, and, and it wasn't helped by the fact that he was one of the one, people with the sharpest elbows, pushing his way to the front every time a bus came that, that wasn't the right bus. And we were sort of pretty determined that he wouldn't be ahead of us on the bus because he'd come late in the day anyway. Anyway, to cut a long story short, six (laughs) or seven o'clock in the evening, the bus turns up. There's a mass sort of rugby scrum for the door. Elbows and knees and suitcases flying all over the place. (laughs) I think I can't remember the exact detail, but let's say that Andrew got on and I was outside with this chap and there was only one space left. I mean, that's a bit more dramatic dramatic than it was. (laughs) That's the film version. That's the film version, yeah, but... Long story short, the conductor of the bus or the driver of the bus, um, in order to sort of solve the problem, heed this chap out and he was remonstrating and he was saying, don't you know, I know this person, I know the controller of this. Anyway, this chap was thrown off the bus. So off he went rather sort of, not quietly anyway, he didn't go quietly. Mm-hmm. And no, he was, he was fighting as he got over, thrown off. And anyway, the door shut and off, off the bus went. And, and Andrew and I were sort of smugly smiling to ourselves, thinking this is... That was a good outcome <laughs> for justice. And then about, um, I don't know, 10 minutes up the road, the bus stopped and suddenly from nowhere this chap appeared and got on brandishing a whole fistful of notes and gave them to the driver and, and, and <laughs> came, came with us anyway. <laughs> so it was like, it was a, there wasn't a seat for him, but um, somehow mm. he managed to do a deal with the driver. And off we set on this very long journey, which hadn't started well at all. We were already tired and irritable. And the VSO Fiona managed to make it on as well. 
Yeah, she was on. She was always on first for everything. Mm. Actually, was that the source of the grumble? <laughs> was part of the problem. It was part of the problem. Uh, anyway, off on this journey, dozing, chatting, yawning, reading occasionally, and at about eleven, twelve o'clock at night, I think the bus broke down. Oh no! In the middle of absolutely nowhere, um, and it sort of broke down with the sort of sense that it was never going to go again. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. And you can imagine it's full of people, it's piled high with luggage. Um, and actually at that particular time of year in that particular part of Zambia, it was quite cold at night. When we got out and we were all huddled around sort of the bus, it, it, it got quite cold while we were trying to work out what to do. And um, some of the other passengers lit a fire to keep warm, which then set light to the surrounding grassland. And oh, suddenly gosh. we were... We were standing in the middle of a broken down bus and an inferno. Um, I mean, I don't know what happened about that inferno. It sort of blew away from us. And hopefully at some point there was no more grass to feed it. But we had to decide what to do. And in the end, it was, it was decided that Andrew and Fiona would go on by hitchhiking. And I would stay with the luggage because you couldn't take all the luggage in, in, a, in a car. So I would stay with the luggage and come with whatever the bus company were able to provide. And mm. so off Fiona and Andrew went, and who knows where to. And we, we got, I think there's a town called Mbala, which was between us and Mpulungu. And I think we, we agreed we'd meet there. Because then it turned out that Fiona was missing a travel permit, which you can't leave the country without. And she hadn't mentioned this until this point. Oh, so no. um, the idea was that Andrew and Fiona would go and try and get her a travel permit. Mm. Um, in Because uh, the... The, the thing was, the boat was going the following day, and we knew that. So uh, they set off. I stayed through the night. Eventually another bus turned up. I got all the luggage on, and off we went to uh, Mbala. And arrived in Mbala, there I found... I found um, Andrew and Fiona were there, is the good thing. And um, they got a travel <laughs> permit, which is also a good thing. But it wasn't without agony, I might say. And um, so the three of us then got back on this bus that then went, carried on its journey. But by the, time, by the time we got to the port, the bus was nearly a day late arriving. So we realised we'd missed the boat. You know, it was, it, mm. it, we were a day late. Um, but as we got off the bus, which was sort of in the town centre, there was somebody who was saying, and then the word started going around and people were saying, the, the boat's a day late as well. The boat's still in. The boat hasn't left Amazing. yet. So, so, so it's kind of talk about highs and lows. You know, you go, well, no, we're going to miss the boat. Oh, the boat's still there. So anyway, we all raced down the hill to the port, gathering all our luggage with us. And sure enough, there was this boat right at the jetty there. And off we went and raced forward, jumped onto the jetty. And just as we got on the jetty, it pulled oh, away. No. And it was sort of, it was almost, if you hadn't got the luggage... You could, I mean, it was too big to jump onto, really, because you needed a gangplank and everything. But you, you could have grabbed onto it somehow in a James mm. Bond style. And, and well, you know and what happens in the film version of this story, don't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. You go running down, throw your luggage on, hop on. How do you know how often that bus runs? Like, is it? Is would it be like? Well, first of all, it's a boat. <laughs> not a bus. Sorry, I meant to say. And, and and secondly, we didn't. But that's when we discovered that it's only once a week. Oh no. <laughs> Not so good. So we'd missed it by uh, by just that that much. And we had to spend the week in Mpulungu, which isn't the world's um, centre of attraction, I have to say. But we did have quite an entertaining week, uh, which I'll tell you all about next time. 
because that is the lead on to the journey back, which uh, had its own adventures, really, um, between Zambia and London, but not the kind of adventures we were expecting in any shape or form. Mm. But that was the story of my um, of my time in Zambia, really. Interesting. So that boat is going to take you, without too many spoilers, of course, but was that where the border was? Does the boat take you off the it border? It was. So that's kind of, yeah. you're at the edge of Zambia now and... And there, exactly that. Neatly. And so, for the film version, we're going to pan out to a kind of animated map where we'll see the little dotted line that goes <laughs> yeah, to the definitely. edge of the border. <laughs> and then the next episode, we'll start with the boat journey. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll have a little animated bus going up, and then it will stop, and then there'll be a little fire fire animation that will go out when they lit the fire, and then. It'll... And if there are any film producers listening to this, you can contact us on uh, theboglarks at gmail dot com. You can and we indeed. Will yeah, discuss it, rights. The <laughs> film rights system. Still, are still available as far as I know. But I mean, that whole that that whole kind of two years was extremely formative for me. Um, and I, I will come back to Zambia at some point in the future, not not in, not soon, but a, in an episode in the future, um, because a lot of that experience sort of affected the sort of person I became. I think um, some in some ways a good way, and then sometimes not such a good way. I think, but. Um, it definitely taught me kind of independence and how to sort of wriggle out of a problem when there isn't anything else around. Mm. And that's, that's been useful in mm. some of the other And so was this, was this sort of 22 to 24? Or a bit younger old. than that? Uh, it was uh, 1981 to 1983. It was exactly that, exactly that, yeah. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good maths. <laughs> But, I, you know, as we talked about in the very first edition of Sliding Doors Moments, I think it was, uh, you know, it all felt very random that I ended up there and who knows what would have happened mm-hmm. otherwise, a different kind of life. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Tommy, what were you doing between 22 and 24? Were you learning independence and how to wiggle out of a problem? <laughs> <laughs> what a loaded question. I don't think I was. I think I, think I was already independent university had taught me that thank you very much university that was that's what i got out of university (laughs) (laughs) supposedly a degree as well um no 22 to 24 was the years when i was working like five different freelance slash zero hour contract jobs and kind of flapping around going gosh isn't life exciting but also what on earth is happening any day and (laughs) like what yeah is there such a thing as a day off and what do i even do on a day off anyway because i'm so my brain is so occupied every other day that was what I was doing. Same question as number two. <laughs> yes, well, I um, I had just graduated. I think I graduated when I was... Maybe I was 23, actually, when I graduated. Well, I think you were. Yeah, all those gap years. Meant, anyway, so I guess I was graduating and similarly trying to be like, what yeah. do you do after you graduate? What is... I, yeah. The films will tell you you just get a job and life works itself out and it mm. is a bit more question marks than that this whole podcast episode is just basically a dethroning of film narratives you don't get on the <laughs> boat you don't get on the boat that you run for you you don't whatever the other one thing was and you don't know whatever the it's other because thing we're was. halfway through our dramatic arcs you, there's no point uh, having the climax of the film at age 24 because yeah. otherwise then what happens Whoa. no i mean I, i'm hoping some listeners are hanging on in there because i definitely it gets it's more interesting the, as we go. Your thing. stories are boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just no. saying that us at 24 just saying all we were doing was going, What's life? Yeah. Isn't highly interesting as a film. Yes. I had a look at my student loan balance um, oh, yeah. 
yesterday I was doing, oh. my, doing my tax return and I can't remember why, but it led me on to wonder if I'd paid any of my student loan recently, which I'm not sure if I have really because I probably don't earn enough. And it's, um, well, I couldn't actually work out how much I'd borrowed uh, initially, but mm. the last record I have is from 2017, which is, so I took my loan out in 2010. I've got a record of um, what it was at 2017, which is, what is that, five years ago. And my loan is currently £300 more than it was in 2017. <laughs> you are kidding. And presumably, I, I think I have been paying it off pretty much, yeah. you know, a little bit. In for five years, I've managed to gain three hundred pounds. <laughs> it's so bananas, oh. isn't it? The whole scheme I find so hard to wrap my head around how it makes any sense. But yeah, also because I mean, I'm swanning along, like not realizing that I have like a a lot, <laughs> a lot of. It's debt, that but... it's that kind of thing where it's not doesn't it isn't really real either. It doesn't seem to. Yeah. Nobody yeah. seems to really care about it. And in it the way gets, that you would, it with... gets written off at some age, doesn't it? So. It's kind of like yeah. you just pay a random amount out while you can until it's too late and then suddenly they're like, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that worry about that £30,000 that you borrowed from us. I mean, the the positives of it are great because obviously it means we didn't have to pay however much money to go to university in the first place. But Well, Stephen, thank you ever so much for yet more excellent stories traveling through zambia it's thrilling i think i have a bit of an idea of what the next episode stories Ooh, might contain you? and i'm very excited to hear them i mean it could be totally wrong and i could be thinking of yeah. some other ones but some of some of the corkers that i just remember having heard about at other times i think <laughs> might be coming up so teaser trailers are coming i up just can't it. wait for the film that's why i'm, I'm <laughs> you know just can't wait for it it yeah, is interesting I'll, for, con- uh, for context working. of listeners like we i think jay and i know I, I sort of said earlier something like no I think that's probably an overestimate there's quite a lot of these stories we have obviously heard before but not necessarily in so much detail not so specifically like just to us and like the opportunity mm. to talk about them and ask questions is a really interesting so like it's really fun being like I think I know what's coming up but do I and what what bits <laughs> don't I know that's going to be told and like oh. <laughs> and I feel like the ones that I know are sort of out of context so it's interesting yeah. kn- knowing a bit more of the context of who you were and where you were at mm. you know what what I live in terror of is one of you saying but the last time you told that it was completely different <laughs> <laughs> no you didn't do that you were doing this instead it wasn't a boat it was a plane well, def- definitely I've learned I mean as I've said before I love, I've loved reliving them all but i mean it is true that memory is never is never right you know it's it's always a, and it changes every time you remember something there's a bit yeah. of a change i think so that's my defense in court well anyway. that's why we're recording this permanently out there in the ether <laughs> so we can have hard evidence it's that hot. it happened <laughs> <laughs> well i was asked yesterday how much i remembered of going to ethiopia and eritrea um mm. of which can you remember how old i was when we went dad gosh young um no, I can't. I, I I thought I was about five, but maybe I was a bit older than I was going to say six was in my head, but I don't know. Yeah. I really wouldn't be sure. Um, well, no. anyway, and I was saying that because because at the time I wrote a, a diary or sort of there's a there's a book that's got kind of the daily sort of journal of what we did and then photos and stuff. Um, and it's all quite simple, but I was saying that I find it... I have no idea whether I can actually remember it or whether I have built a picture of it because of rereading what I wrote. Yes. Well, it's which, a combination of and, the two, I think, probably. Yeah, and, mm. and, you know, maybe it doesn't 
well, it doesn't matter which is which, but it's interesting to think it's exactly at that age where, you know, probably would have forgotten it all, except that I did write it down. But do mm. I just now remember mm. the writing? Who knows? Mm. Well, if the, I mean, it's probably that means your memory is more accurate now than it would otherwise have been, because the writing would have been pretty immediate, you know, it would have been mm. done at the time. Um, Actually, no, a thing I do remember, which I'm pretty sure isn't in the book, is that we had to take these malaria tablets, which tasted really horrible. And so um, mum, I would guess, crushed them up and uh, put them in Nutella on toast. That's it. Yeah. I feel which... like I remember that as well, but I don't know if I could possibly. But uh, I think yeah. possibly it made the Nutella just taste not great. but <laughs> Which seems impossible. Then guess what? It's exactly the same thing that Mutz is doing now with Sooty, our cat. She's because oh. <laughs> Nutella. Up, well, not Nutella, but in <laughs> maple syrup has been has been used and um, anything oh, sweet clever. to try and persuade him to eat his medicine. But um, he's not yeah, quite so compliant well. as you were. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a bit older than we were, so yeah. yeah, that's true. Great. Well, look forward to hearing all about your adventures in episode eleven. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, then give us a rating, give us a comment, and get following. We are at the Podclocks on all the social medias. Whopping. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a treat. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye.